invite you to open your Bible then tonight to Psalm 73. Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph under the title of The Cure for a Bitter Heart. Asaph was a musician, you maybe know that, uh, was appointed by David, served in the reigns of David and King Saul, a musician in the temple, and uh, wrote Psalm 50 and then Psalms 73 through 83. So there are several psalms we'll be looking at in the coming weeks of uh, Psalms of Asaph. And here we have maybe his most uh, well-known psalm, Psalm 73. Let's give our attention to God's Word. Truly, God is good to Israel to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment." Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches." All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by tears. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory." Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Let's once again ask the Lord's blessing. Father, we again recognize our need for the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that you give to lead us and guide us in truth. And so I pray, Lord, that you would do just that tonight, and we'd acknowledge uh, that we've heard your voice, the voice of our God and our Savior, and that we'd be, Lord, then set free to, to follow you, to serve you this week. In Jesus' name, amen. As we go through the psalm, I'm going to be... Uh, as I quote, I'll be quoting from the NIV as well as the ESV. I think the NIV, I think, captures some of the phrases um, a little more clearly. Um, the Psalm 73 is a psalm that's been a just a delight to God's people because it speaks it, it speaks truth through our heart. Uh, this morning uh, we had uh, Pastor Dave Veldhorst and he talked about how the Psalms are uh, they really are training our emotions and and teaching us how to 
to deal with emotions and, and, and to, um, to have our emotions trained by the truth of God. Well, Psalm 3 was about the emotions of fear and anxiety. Psalm 73 is about the emotion of bitterness in heart, a bitterness towards God. Asaph confesses that um, he struggled with bitterness towards God. He was envious of the proud. And, um, and uh, he had hard thoughts about God. God's ways didn't make sense to him, and, and, and he, needed, he needed help. And he, and he teaches us how to find that. Uh, and and I, as I'm writing, was writing this sermon this week, just reflecting on the reality that uh, we deal with bitter, bitterness towards God. Uh, it might be a low-grade bitterness, something that's, um, that, that, that's just sort of under the surface. It might be very very much up uh, in, in the front of your heart and mind. But, but most of God's people deal at some point in their life with a, a, some bitterness, that, that God um, allowed some painful thing. Maybe it was the death of a, of a parent when you were a child, and, and your family was devastated by that, and, and it never made sense to you. Maybe it was a divorce that you didn't desire. Maybe it was an illness that um, has severely impacted your life. Maybe it was um, a career that never panned out. There are, there are things that we face, things that we experience that simply don't make sense to us. Um, we, we've seen, maybe you've seen things happen to other people, and um, heartaches, tragedies that are, are senseless. Uh, maybe they're, they're just, maybe the, the bitterness you, that you sense towards God are, is just rooted in the, the hardships of daily life, a, a hard marriage. And, and you're trying your best, but it doesn't seem to be getting any better, and God doesn't seem to be helping. Maybe it's difficult children, uh, and, and you're at your wit's end. Maybe you've been betrayed by a friend. Uh, maybe you're unhappy with how God made you. Young people can often struggle with this. Why didn't God make me this way? Uh, why did He make me this way? And, and uh, God's people deal then with these realities where God's ways don't make sense to us, and we can be bitter about that. I, I remember talking with a man whose 20-year-old daughter was killed in a car accident, a believing man, and he still goes to church, but his, but his heart is deeply bitter towards God. He doesn't pray anymore. He's not able to because it doesn't seem that prayer does any good. And there are people who um, go to church every Sunday, and their faith is... is, is crippled, handicapped, uh, uh, undercut by these, uh, the, the sense of w- what is God doing and why, is he, why has he done these things to me? Why has he allowed these things? Maybe even as you um, listen to the news and, and read what's going on in the world and you see the devastation and the heartache that's, being, uh, that, that's all over the place. Children dying because they don't have food. Um, innocent people um, being killed because of a senseless war. Does it seem, you know, you, in, your, in your heart you can begin to ask, does, does it seem like there's a living God who's in control? Does it, does it seem like um, the lives of God's people are under the loving care of a fatherly hand? What do we do with hard thoughts about God? Our tendency is to suppress them and to just tell ourselves, well, we shouldn't think that way. We shouldn't feel that way. We shouldn't we shouldn't have these, these thoughts about God. Uh, Asaph in Psalm 73 shows us that, uh, that that's not the, the way to move forward. Uh, Asaph acknowledges the truth of his bitterness. He faces it head on. He names it. 
This is what it was, and this is what brought it about. And then he shows us how to move free, to, to be set free from that bitterness of heart, to once again be brought to a place of trust and praise um, before the Lord. And so tonight we're going to begin by just looking at the complaint in verses 1 through 12. Uh, and, and Asaph begins his complaint with a profession, a confession of faith. Surely, uh, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, that is a basic a foundational element of the uh, biblical faith, of, of the Jewish faith, right, in the Old Testament, that, that they believed that God promised, promised to bless them. In the, in the covenant that God had given to them in Moses, God promised to bless them if they obeyed His laws and kept His commands, and God promised to punish them if they were wicked. And, 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 and so, of just a foundational tenet of faith is that God is good to those who are good, and God uh, brings the, the, the consequences of evil upon the heads of those who commit the sin. It's a foundational stone of their faith. It's the ordering principle of the moral universe. God does good to those who do good. God punishes those who do evil. That's how the world works. If you remember in the book of Job, that's what Job's three friends came to Job with. That basic assumption, God does good to good people, he punishes evil people, Job, you're being punished, you must be evil. Well, Asaph has this same, uh, this same <coughs> concept of, of the way the world works, <coughs> uh, and I think we share that in general. I was talking just this week to a man who, um, about my age, and his family had come under a vicious, a false accusation that led to eight policemen showing up that, uh, at their door. Uh, one evening, and two years of uh, expensive legal issues. And he, he expressed his stunned disbelief at what was happening. He just said, how could this happen to us? We're a good Christian family. And I think we have this sort of underlying assumption that if we, that if we live right, if we trust in the Lord, go to church, read the Bible, pray, then life will go well and ought to go well. And and. and Hardships and heartaches, um, particularly when the devastating things of life, we have a hard time reconciling that with this assumption. Well, Asaph is, is facing that, that exact problem, that he believes that God does good to those who do good and, and that God brings um, punishment upon the wicked. But, but as he looks around, that doesn't seem to be true. It doesn't seem to be the way that God actually works. So he says, verse 2, as for me, my, my feet had almost stumbled and my steps had nearly slipped because I, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Uh, as Asaph looks at the world the way it actually is, he doesn't see good people uh, being blessed and, and evil people being punished. What he, what he sees are uh, wicked people living the dream. Uh, Asaph uh, probably has access, uh, being in the temple courts, um, to dignitaries as maybe as they would come into town. We know that many uh, men would, would uh, travel to King David and King Solomon from all over the world, and he, uh, he had access to, <coughs> to see these, <coughs> these men. And uh, they're, they're, they're wealthy, they're self-confident, they're pleasure-seeking, they're arrogant, they're prosperous. They don't seem to be suffering whatsoever because of their sin, and it becomes a crisis of Asaph's faith. Some of you may have had a similar experience. I think if you grew up in a Christian home, you probably grew up with the assumption that 
that Christian people live blessed lives and, and unbelievers live miserable lives, right? Happiness and contentment can only come from God, and if you don't have God, then you are um, in death and, and in misery, and, and then you went off to college. And it didn't look like unbelievers were in misery at all. Maybe you went to the military. You went to work. And you realize that, the, that, that wicked people are doing quite well. They're very happy, very confident, very content in their wickedness. They're, they're not agonizing over their sin. They're not, they're, not, um, they're not dealing with just the heartache of having a, a, a God-honoring life. They're just living as they please and enjoying themselves immensely in the process. And it can be a crisis to your faith. How does the world actually work? Well, Asaph, as he saw the wicked, there's, there's things that he mentions that it, it just didn't fit with his, his paradigm. They, these wicked people have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They, they die peacefully and with honor. Asaph had assumed, and maybe we have assumed, that, that really, really wicked people, people like Hitler and Stalin, for instance, the, we would at least want them to die miserable deaths, remorseful deaths. We'd like, them to, we'd like to think that, that they died confessing that they were wrong, that their life was a waste, but that rarely happens. Uh, even when they take their life, as Hitler did, it was an act of, of, of disobedience, rebellion against God. So all, all, the, all his life, right? There's no cognizance of God. They, they, they live their life. They... And then, and then they die at ease. They're free, verse 5, from the, the trouble that other people experience. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. The beautiful people of Hollywood and the professional, right, the pop stars and the professional athletes. Uh, well, they don't seem plagued by common ills. Uh, they're not worrying about making payments. They're not worried about car repairs. Uh, I, I remember Alan Elder once said that you don't have to be uh, rich and famous in order to be happy. You just have to be rich. And, and rich people, right, if you looked around, um, it's a pretty nice lifestyle. I, I, uh, it's a lifestyle that we could easily uh, get comfortable with and, and easily envy. I remember uh, flying to Brazil a couple years ago for uh, 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 doing some speaking out there at a conference, and, um, and some uh, dear brother gave me uh, access to first-class seats on the airplane. I like first-class. <clears throat> It's a wonderful way to fly. Uh, and, and you walk past these people who are sitting sort of bored in first class, like, you know, they fly first class all the time. Um, they don't seem to suffer the problems that are common to mankind. And, and, and Aphesus says, therefore, pride is their necklace. Uh, they wear their pride like jewelry. They do it what they want to do. They serve themselves, accommodate themselves. They make no apologies, even when their behavior devastates other people. He says in verse 6, violence covers them as a garment. Violence. They destroy their marriages and, and, and don't apologize for it. They, they destroy uh, livelihoods, right? You, you know of, of men who buy businesses and then just sell all the assets, and uh, livelihoods are destroyed. Uh, retirement accounts disappear, and there's no apologies. And that happens all the time. Uh, people are today bent on destroying the nuclear family. No apologies. All the lives that will be devastated, all the children who grow up without a mom and a dad. 
They, they clothe themselves. They wear their violence. They, they, they wear their, their pride like a necklace. And, and, and Asaph says their, their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. You can just see these pompous people, these wicked people um, who have not only no concern for God, but a, a, they despise God. They mock God. They scoff God. We have a society that's increasingly taking up that demeanor. Um, Carl Truman wrote recently about Pride Month. Think of that. What a, what, a, what a word. The irony of that. Pride Month. Truman writes, Pride Month marks the beginning of a summer with, with a dramatic assertion of human autonomy and the sovereignty of individual desire. That my desire will be God. I shall reign. I shall do as I please. Truman says, the rebels take over time and space. With their flags and their parades, they assert ownership over space, public, commercial, virtual, and even via yard signs and symbols on social media, personal and private space. You see a culture, a society, with, the, with their mouths they lay claim to heaven and their tongue struts right through the earth. That's the society we live in. And God doesn't seem to do anything about it. Pride month happens year after year. It just gets worse until it becomes commonplace. And Aphesus points out that that just emboldens people. Therefore, people turn, um, turn, turn back to them and, and find no fault in them. The, the NIV says, therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like, always carefree. They increase in wealth. You see, Asa's problem isn't that wicked people are wicked. It's that they're wicked gleefully with no consequences. There's no, there's no fire from heaven. They just live their life and, and uh, they're, just spew out their wickedness and then they die in peace. So what's, what's the point of being a believer? That's, that's Asa's crisis. Surely in vain. I've kept my heart pure. Uh, I've washed my hands in innocence. For all day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. So here's a man he's wrestling with his conscience. Here's a man who has experienced the discipline of God, the Father. Uh, here's a man who looks around and he sees Israelites, the people who are poor, godly, seeking to serve the Lord, and yet struggling with all the, the, ailments, the ailments of life. And, and, and Asaph says, well, what's the point? What's, what's the point of being good if there's no blessing attached to it? What, why not then just join the wicked? In vain I have kept my heart pure. There are, there are people who lose their faith every day over things like this. People who say, after some great tragedy or, or after just noticing the world living in luxury and, and, and enjoying their sin, and, uh, and people who finally say, well, what's the point? People who've prayed to ask God to remove some, some difficulty in their life, and He doesn't. And they, well, it's in vain. It, it doesn't make any sense. Why do, why, why do I go around beating myself up when, when God doesn't even bother to fix the problems? I mean, wh wh what good is He for? And so they walk away. Every single day it happens. It's a real crisis. So how do you correct it? How do we, how do we 
learn to, to think about God and to see God in truth so that when the tragedy happens to us, we don't stumble like Asaph did. And so secondly, we see the, the correction. Asaph's in a real dilemma, verse 15. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. He can't talk about this publicly. I mean, he's the head musician of the temple. He, he, can't, he, he, can't, um, he, he can't go and say, folks, let me just tell you, it's pointless. It's in vain. Don't, don't bother. He would have betrayed Israel. Verse 16, he, he, he can't understand it in his private thoughts. When, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He cannot figure it out. It does not make sense. It doesn't, it doesn't fit with, with what he assumed to be true. Until, verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Until I went to the place where God reveals himself. Until I went to the place that God had appointed. The place where I could meet with God. The place where, where, where God would speak to me and show me the, the things that are, that are absolutely true. You see, this is, we don't call the church a sanctuary, but it's God's, it's, it's God's temple, isn't it? The church is. It's where God meets with his people. This is why we, we come to church on, on Sundays, because we, if we don't, your, your, uh, your tendency, our tendency is going to be to judge God by feeble human sense, as William Coper says. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. And, and we're going to get, our, our thinking is going to be warped, and we're going we're to get stuck, because life won't make sense. We need this. We need to hear from the word of God corporately together. Asaph says, when I went into the sanctuary of God, then, then truth became clear to me again. And I, I understood things as they actually are, actually are. Then I discerned their end. See, Asaph discovered two things when he went to the sanctuary of God. He discovered the, the true condition of the wicked and the blessedness of the believer. He saw the, the true plight of the wicked. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And so he just, he, re, he remembers there's an end. You see, we get, we get so tunnel vision when we're, when we're looking about us and we see the yachts. Uh, we, we see the beautiful homes. Uh, we see the luxurious vacations. We, we, we see the rich having a, a wonderful time. And, and it, it's, it's good. It's, it, it's enjoyable. But, but Asaph realizes that there's an end to this. It's, it's, it's temporary. And, and, and the end comes much more quickly than people imagine. And, the, and the, the end for the wicked is a horrifying end. And in fact, Asaph realizes that, that God in judgment against the wicked, <clears throat> when it says you put them, you set them in slippery places, the blessings actually become things that blind. And, and, and I don't understand God's ways. His ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. But, but Asaph says what God is doing is blinding the eyes of people so that they cannot see their need. But why would they need God? Life is good. They have everything that they desire. They, 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 they enjoy everything that, that they want. But, it, but, but God's at work in that. 
Um, and, and they are utterly destroyed in a moment. And, and, and you see, there's going to be a day when, when life stops. There's going to be a day when, when Jesus comes. There's going to be a judgment day. And, and that day is going to be a day of unimaginable terror for those who don't know God because at that, on that day, well, what would you give for your soul? On that day, you see, eternity stretches out before you with no God, no light, only darkness, only evil forever. That's, that's the reality of, of the Bible. That, that the scripture constantly just calls you, you see, to look at temporary things in light of eternal things and to judge temporary things in light of eternal things. Well, that's what Asaph does. And he feels like such a fool. It says in verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. He was an absolute idiot. He was, he was, he was stupid as he, as he was envying people who God had already placed in a, in a place of judgment and whose end was this. How, how could he have been envious of them? Remember, Jesus said it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. There's a, it's a word that we need to remember. And Asaph just feels, uh, he, he just senses, he sees his stupidity, his ignorance, his folly. I was like a, I was like a beast towards you. Like I, like I just had lost my mind because I'd forgotten the things, the, the, the eternal things. But also, um, he had forgotten the treasure and the blessedness of being a child of God. So that's where he goes in verse 23, and he starts to count the blessings of being a Christian, of, be, of being a, a covenant member, someone who belongs to God's family. The blessings that you see are not, are not the blessings necessary that the world enjoys. God blesses us with everything we need, and some of us with vastly more than we need. And yet those are not the blessings, the, the particular blessings that belong to the children of God. What are the special, particular blessed blessings that belong to the children of God? Well, notice verse 23, God's presence and His persevering faithfulness. Yet I am always with you, and you hold me by the right hand. I'm continually with you. And you hold me by the right hand, God's mighty hand, His sovereign hand. Even when Asaph was, in a sense, abandoning God because of his, his bitter spirit towards God, God was not abandoning him. When Asaph was questioning God, God was holding Asaph by his right hand. It is a precious thing to be a child of God, to know that through all the, the difficulties of our life and through all the unbelief in our heart, God is faithful and God holds on to us. God is keeping us close to him. If that were not true, friends, we would have wandered away. A thousand times over. And so the blessedness of God loving him and keeping him close. Verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. So the blessedness of being a child of God is that God guides us in this life and that he's guiding us to an end. Asaph discerned the end of the wicked. It was horrifying. And now he discerns the end of the children of God. Afterward you will take me into glory. You see, we sang the song, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. All the way where? Not just to the end of your life, not just to the funeral. 
all the way to glory, all the way to the presence of God, all the way to a perfected body and mind and, and a, a perfect, perfected, glorified you in the presence of Jesus Christ with all of God's perfected saints and all the holy angels of heaven in a new heaven and a new earth forever and ever and ever. That's what Asaph is rejoicing in. And that's, that's the gift, you see, such a treasure for the people of God. And friends, I, we, I don't know why. Why would, why would God choose you and choose me to be heirs of glory? We're no different than anyone else, creatures of dust, rebels who've sinned against God a thousand times, and, 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 and our sin increased because we've sinned against what we know. We've sinned against love, divine love. We've sinned against God's revealed truth. We've sinned against all the spiritual privileges that we've received. And so our sin, in, in many ways, even greater than the unbeliever, and yet God has given us to Jesus Christ. And Christ's righteousness to us. They, the, the wicked clothe themselves with violence. God has clothed us with the righteousness of Jesus. Not because of anything in us. Simply because of his good pleasure. And the blessedness of being a, a child of God, thirdly, is the treasure of God himself. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, and it does. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You see, when Asaph was envying the arrogant, he was envying the stuff that they had. He, he envied all the material blessings they enjoyed. That, that became the treasure of his heart. When we get bitter with God, it's because we, we were grieving the loss of something that we cherish, something that we treasure. We really wanted that marriage to work or, we really wanted that job. We, we wanted to, be, to have a healthy body. We wanted uh, our, our children to be uh, thriving. And those are not bad things to want. But they're not meant to be your portion. God is meant to be your portion. God is meant to be the treasure of your heart. You see, to, if, if you're a Christian believing that, that, that Christianity and, and obeying God and following God is a means to, to an end, and the end is your best life now, you're just a deceived person. You, you, haven't, you haven't come to the, the glory, the beauty of what, it, of what you get in Jesus Christ. What you get in Jesus Christ is Christ. You get, you get God as your treasure. God is your portion and, and, and in such a degree that, you, that you're able to say, I can let all the rest of it go. You can have this whole world, right? Just give me Jesus. That there's nothing on earth that I desire beside Jesus. Not, you give me the, the, the best life this earth could possibly give, and you can give it to me a million times over, and it's nothing, nothing compared to knowing Jesus Christ, belonging to him, seeing him, being brought by him into the presence of his Father without spot and with great joy. You see, once you've, once you've discovered God himself as your portion, you've found the deepest treasure of life, the deepest treasure of all of eternity. How do you gain that perspective when you're in a place of pain? Maybe you're in a place of pain tonight. Well, enter the sanctuary where God reveals himself. Open his word. Let God speak to you, even in Psalm 73. 
And then reflect on what God has done for you to make himself your portion. He didn't have to do that. He could have left you in your blindness, seeking your portion in all the passing things and then eternity of hell. But God loved you, and he gave him his son for you. Because, you see, we were the wicked. We were, we were the people clothing ourselves with, with, with violence and pride as our necklace. No need of God, no thought of God, no desire for God. But God loved us, and while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. You see, when you, when you, when you come to the cross you realize there's no room to complain. How do you complain to a God who has nail prints in his hands and his feet? There's no room for bitterness. There's just room for worship. We don't understand. I don't, I don't know why the hurts come the way they do. I don't know the trials that you're experiencing. I, I, don't, I don't know. God's ways are higher than, my, than our ways. His thoughts than our thoughts. But everything we need to know, he's revealed for us and for our children, in his word, in Jesus Christ. And so, friends, I, I would just encourage you to, to, to think about the bitterness that you maybe have, the hard thoughts that you have towards God. Face it. Name it. What is it that you think God has, where he's erred, where he could have done better, where he wasn't paying attention? And then bring that reality, that experience, bring it to the cross, and bury it there in the tomb of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And then lay hold of him as the treasure of your heart. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, set your minds on things above, right? Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's the believer's profession. When Christ, who is our life, appears, we will appear with him in glory. And that's enough, friends, to make the bitterness go away. That's enough to, to allow us to live a life free from bitterness, free from fear, a life full of Rejoicing, even in trials, life full of faith, full of confidence that if God is our portion, we are the wealthiest people in the world. If God is our portion, we can worship. Amen. Father, we confess the bitterness of our own heart, the times where we've judged you to be unfaithful, We've judged you to be wrong because we've judged you by our feeble human sense. Oh, Lord, I thank you that in your grace you bring us into your sanctuary and you speak to us your truth. Father, there are some here tonight who are gripped with a bitterness that's been maybe part of their life for years. And they find it hard to pray and hard to trust you and hard to find joy because they're clinging to the hurt, the feeling of being betrayed. And Father, I, I just pray that you would guide that person to the cross to see God with 
with all the love of a dying Savior for them. And that, Lord, we could be set free then from the bitterness, from the hard thoughts, and enjoy you as our portion forever. I will thank you, Lord, that you guide us throughout this life, and afterward you will take us into glory. And so, Lord, teach us to live as people with heaven on our mind, with glory in our heart, and people who love Jesus with an undying love because he loved us and gave himself to death for us. And Father, I I pray that this truth would transform our lives, change the way that we think, change how we feel, change how we live, and all the glory goes to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to stand and sing together from Psalm 73, In Doubt and Temptation, I Trust Lord in Thee. Let's stand together and sing.